The first job I had in college was at Baskin Robbins. And it was in the late 90s, and counterfeit currency was regularly passing through unnoticed. It was being passed along. Uh, and that's why the Federal Reserve made Andrew Jackson's head a lot bigger on the $20 bill. That was supposed to be funny. Okay. Um, it was a redesign. Actually, probably some of you, so you don't even remember what the old 20s looked like. Okay. Um, but we, uh, we had to go through a training because, we, I mean, even the people in our store, we didn't recognize the counterfeit 20s um, and until um, we were trained and we got updated lenses. These are from Costco. They're on sale for 30 bucks. It's a really good deal. Polarized. Um, I didn't shop on Sunday, though. I'm just giving you a hard time. Okay. Uh, you'll see where that ties in in a minute. But when we, were, when we got the right lenses, we could see that um, we could tell the difference between the real and the counterfeit. Because the closer you get to a counterfeit, the more obvious the imitation. And the closer you get to the real thing, the more obvious its authenticity. That's why we're looking at Jesus through the lens of John the Apostle over these nine weeks. We're going through his gospel, his story, his account of the life and the ministry of Jesus and what it means. The gospel of John is a little different than the other three gospels. They're called synoptic gospels. That just means they follow a linear timeline, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They start at the beginning of Jesus' life, and they end at the end of his time here on earth, and it tells, it gives accounts of mostly what the world or the community saw, an account of his public ministry. John's book is a lot longer. That's why we always tell people to start there, because they'll get more of God's word if they, if they read the gospel of John first. You guys with me this morning? <laughs> I need an applause card. Richard, can you help me out with that? Okay. Well, <laughs> the, um, but John adds to the account of the public ministry, he adds records of many private conversations that Jesus had with the disciples, with him personally. Uh, and it, it shows us the lens, the intimacy, the friendship by which John authenticated. Yes, thank you. I forgot my iPad. I am uh, sometimes tech technologically deficient. Okay. Thank you, Jared. I was, so caught up, I was so caught up in the presence, I forgot the iPad. Uh-oh. Okay, yes. We got it. Um, that John could, he got his friendship and his intimacy with Jesus. It was the lens that he used to authenticate Jesus as the Son of God. And the Gospel of John is also where we get almost, we get all of the I am statements. John took what he saw, he got so up, he got up close to Jesus and in such a private and an intimate way in his friendship that he could tell us what some of the public ministry meant. 
He could tell us some of the things that Jesus really was and, and what it means, what, what the big picture was from getting really up close to Jesus. And so um, today we're going to look at Jesus as the true vision. Can we say that today? Jesus was the true vision. More accurately, Jesus is the true vision. So we're going to look at John chapter 9, and I'm going to give you a little background, and then we'll get to our passage, which starts in verse 35 through 41. Um, So you can turn there while I give you a little context. So the story is, is that Jesus and his disciples were walking through town, and they saw a man. They came upon a man who was blind from birth. And the disciples saw the man through the religious lens of their upbringing. And they asked Jesus, is this, is this man blind because he sinned or because his parents sinned? You realize a lot of us look at life and the people around us through the lens, the religious lens, the social lens, the cultural lens that we've grown up with. And many of us are unaware of the way that lens affects our view of people. The lens that his disciples, Jesus' disciples were wearing weren't, wasn't in fact only a Jewish lens. There was a lot of paganism in that area and the ideas of reincarnation and rebirth and you know, different things being passed from one generation to the next. And, you know, and his disciples are, are looking at this man who is blind from birth through the lens of their upbringing, what they had been taught by the Pharisees, what they had gleaned from their culture. And they thought they were asking Jesus a perfectly reasonable question. And Jesus had a perfectly accurate answer. Friends, it was neither. It was neither this man's sin. Of course, how does one... It was neither this man's sin or the sins of his parents. Now, Jesus wasn't saying that these people or this man was born without sin. It was, he was saying that there was no particular sin that was committed that earned or deserved this man being smitten by God with blindness. And so Jesus spits into the dust of the road, gets down and forms this spittle of mud, and he spreads it on the man's eyes and makes him a, a poster child for blindness. I mean, he was already known in the community as a man who was blind from birth, yet Jesus caked his eyes with mud and then told him to walk through town. Well, everyone's looking at, well, I know that man is blind, but why does he is now eyes covered with mud? He became a physical poster child of this blindness. And Jesus sent him to the pool of Siloam and the man washed in the pool and he came back seeing. 
And that's where the trouble began. Because the Pharisees were out trying to trap Jesus. They had a little revolution on their hands and they were trying to squash and silence under threat of fear or excommunication anyone who claimed to be a disciple of Jesus. They were trying to trap Jesus. They were trying to prove that he wasn't really divine, that what he wasn't really the son of God. He wasn't the Messiah. They were trying to trap him and set him up on different, you know, different situations to, to try him and figure out where the flaw was, where the imitation was. They were trying to find the backside of Jesus. They, they were seeing the front, but they, they were convinced he was an imitation. And they were trying to locate it and trap anyone who was deceived by his teaching or by his ministry. And so they approached the man and you know, he's having this conversation with them and they're trying to figure out, okay, how, how were your eyes opened? You must be somebody different. Are, are, they're, they're, they're trying to figure out, is this the same man or did you take the guy who was actually born blind out into the woods, tie him up to a tree and now you're impersonating him to prove the Messiah? Like, where, where's the catch? Where's the, where's the imitation? Where's the, 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 the thread that we can put this Jesus to open shame once and for all? And the man simply says, he doesn't even claim Jesus is the Messiah. He just says, hey, this, this man was a prophet. He must be a prophet or I wouldn't be able to see. Hello. I mean, it, Scripture says that no one up to that point in history who had been born blind had ever been healed and given their sight. I mean, that's a bold statement. So he must be a prophet. He must be sent from God. And so the Pharisees turn to his family, his parents. They try to figure out where the, where the flaw is um, and under threat of fear. And his parents, his parents say, hey, look, my, our son is of age. He's already an adult. You're not gonna trap us and get us to say something stupid so that we get cast out. And so they go back to him and they have this interchange again and they press this man again. And the man, the man just is is giving a faithful witness. He's not trying to tell them what it means. He's, I mean, he, he's entering into this dialogue and trying to, to track with them a little bit, but he's just saying, hey, look, I, I spent my whole life blind and now I can see you. Is that enough? And the Pharisees excommunicated him. They were convinced this man must be somehow a secret disciple. Where's the, where's the catch? So they put him out. And that was a serious thing. I mean, this man grew up blind. He had never seen the streets that he was walking down. He had not seen the people he was talking to. He probably didn't have any sellable skills. And being excommunicated or being put out of the synagogue meant that he had to leave his parents he had to leave his church. He had to leave his town. He couldn't own property. He couldn't buy and sell. I mean, he was being given, he was being banished to the wilderness. And can you hear the voice of Jesus in another gospel saying, blessed is he who loses father and mother and brother and sister and friend on my account. And this man is walking out of the only community he's ever known. And Jesus hears about it. 
verse 35. Jesus heard that they, the Pharisees, had cast him out. And when he, Jesus, had found him, he said to him, do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, well, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Some Pharisees tagged along. Sorry to spoil the fun. But then uh, this tender moment turned. And Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world. That those who do not see may see. That those who see may be made blind. And then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. There are two parts to this conversation. A tender moment with a man walking out of the only community he's ever known for his faithful witness to Jesus Christ and Jesus turning and having some words with the people who caused the pain and the trauma in the first place. The idea in the first part of this conversation is the idea of spiritual sight. In the first part, we see the heart of Jesus on display to pursue the wounded, the wrongfully accused. This man was banished from his community. He lost his parents, his friends, his people as a consequence for his faithful witness. And remember, before Jesus revealed he was the Messiah to this man, the Son of God, the blind man thought Jesus was a prophet. The man asked Jesus, who is the Son of God, Lord? Or, and that wasn't Lord Jesus. It was, who is the Son of God, sir, that I may believe in him? And then just the, there's these very unusual aspects or qualities of Jesus' relationship with this man. Um, just make sure I'm, because Jesus, he reveals himself plainly. You know, all throughout many of the other gospels, people are pressing and asking him, hey, are you the Messiah? Are you the son of God? And he answers them with more questions. He answers them with parables. He answers them with a teaching or something that's a little veiled, maybe mysterious, that, that tries their hearts in the moment. But when this man asked Jesus, who is the son of God? Jesus answered plainly, it's me. It's me. And this man walking, I mean, in the sting of being sent away. Yes, he had received his sight. But how many of us would trade our relationships with everyone whom we've known our whole life 
for sight. I don't know. He's walking in the sting of his excommunication. And he just receives the Lord. He says, yes, I believe. And he worshiped him. Even before, I mean, the man followed a bizarre instruction. Jesus, who he, he wasn't even sure at that moment because he wasn't healed. He wasn't even really sure by any maybe physical means that Jesus was who Jesus was. And he let this Jesus make mud and put it all over his eyes, right where his infirmity lay. And then he responded and agreed to walk through town as the poster child for blindness. Everyone would see the mud caked all over his eyes. What do these unusual encounters reveal about the condition of this man's heart before the Lord? Could it be that this man, in his physical blindness, could see Jesus more clearly than anyone else? I am in no way saying that God uses the tools of darkness and death and sickness and decay to teach us about his love. But it, could it be that this man received his sight at a later point, his physical point in his life, because the Lord had opened and was training him in spiritual sight to be able to receive Jesus. Sight is the ability to see accurately without clouding, without blurring, without warping. And so our spiritual sight is the ability to see God and ourselves in relationship to God accurately. Spiritual sight is not a gold star we earn or a pedigree we can lean on. Spiritual sight is a gift of grace that we receive in humility. Maybe the years that this man spent growing up and coming of age, not yet having received his physical sight, allowed him to train and allowed his heart to be accustomed to being dependent on somebody else, to being okay with neediness, to being okay to rely on somebody else. This man was not self-sufficient. And being okay and trained in his dependence and his neediness, he could receive Jesus for who he really is. Because the counterfeit lens to true spiritual sight is almost always a version of self-sufficiency. It's been with us since the Garden of Eden we think we can do it ourselves. 
We think we have all the answers. We think we've figured it out. Even when we, our life is in shambles, we want to do it our way. We want to do it our way. We don't want to need anyone else. We don't want to be needy. We don't want to be dependent. We don't want to be weak. But Paul said, what did Paul say? In my weakness is God's strength. And Paul was, I mean, Paul was an orator. He was eloquent. He had memorized most of the Torah. And he comes and he says, all this I have is nothing, nothing apart from the Lord. He did, he worked great miracles. He, he preached great messages. He wrote great letters inspired by the Holy Spirit. He saw thousands and multitudes come to saving knowledge in Jesus Christ. And he said, it, 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 in my weakness, he has made me strong. In my blindness, I finally saw him. I saw him for who he was, for who he is. The most dangerous place a person can be is the center of his own universe. Matthew Henry says it this way, there is no greater hindrance to the salvation of souls than self-sufficiency. Jesus is not a bolt-on power source to our American life. Although I love our nation, he is not a bolt-on power source. He is, however, the ultimate power for any person willing to freely admit his own weakness, neediness, and total dependence before God. What if our witness to others and even to our children resulted in them asking us, who is this Jesus that I may believe in him? What if we had spiritual sight that wasn't clouded by our own self-sufficiency? You know, Michelle and I, We've witnessed God at work in this way, right next door at Christ Classical School. Not that the school itself is something to be put on a pedestal, but as we've pressed into Christ-centered community there, we have begun to hear our own children asking the questions of us in many different ways that my heart and Michelle's heart, our heart have longed to hear, asking, who is this Jesus, Dad, that I may believe in him? Who is this Jesus, Mom, that I may believe in him? Mr. Trotter, can you come up and help me unpack this idea for a minute? Thanks for being with us this morning. So this idea of self-sufficiency and true sight, I just, just to start, what, what are Christian families up against in our culture today? Well, Pastor Jeff, first, let me say it's wonderful to be here. Okay. <laughs> it's wonderful to be here, and let me just say that we are very grateful for our relationship with Agape, and you guys have just been so wonderful to us. Um, you know as well as I do that um, Christian bookstore shelves are full 
of uh, books on culture and um, how, what we are dealing with as Christians today and what Christian families are dealing with today. Um, to answer your question specifically and quickly, if I may, um, I think what we're looking at is we are living in an age where our culture is being inundated with ungodliness, yeah. and unrighteousness, and evil. And it, it's swimming around, Yeah. right? Um, I think the biggest problem that our families are facing, in, in light with what you're saying with seeing right, is we have a tendency or we're going to be drawn to see that this culture that we're living in, this culture of unrighteousness, of evil, is the norm. Right. Right? It's the norm. And so it's going to be impacting our families as opposed to what we need to be doing, which is to be developing a God-centered, right-viewing culture within our homes and within our, our, our communities so that we begin to, to push back against it. Yes. So I think the biggest problem that we're facing, again, is, is not just that we're engaging in, we're, we're living in it, but that it, it's becoming normal. Yes. So what is the mission of Christ's classical school, like what, what, what did God send you here to do? Well, our, our mission is, of course, we're a school. So our, our, our mission is to teach and train uh, young ladies and gentlemen to grow in the likeness of Christ. We, certainly we do math and science and history, and we teach those subjects, and hopefully at a high level, to honor the Lord. But the true goal is to develop a culture where young ladies and young gentlemen can, can start seeing rightly the way God designed the world. Yes. Right? Thank and you, Lord. that centers on the Word of God. And so what we're here to do is to take God's Word and to open it up every day and read it, but then to take it and live it, right? Yes. So that every decision that is made is funneled through the Word of God. Every interaction we have with children, hopefully, is funneled through the Word of God. Every... every Interaction we have with families is funneled through the Word of God. The Word of God was not given to us just to read. It was given to us to live. Yes. And so Christ Classical, and we came, my wife and I came to start a school where we could begin to live the gospel. Thank you, Lord. Yes, and we receive you. I just want to receive you and and Kenwin again Um, as our neighbors, um, as transplanted New Californians. Hallelujah. And you have. (laughs) And you have. And... uh, I, how do you, how do you, I mean, I see in my own kids just them wrestle with self-sufficiency. And I mean, I see it even in myself. I find myself, oh, how, how do you, um, how do you engage in a holy way this, um, this self-sufficiency that tries to get us and get our children in their right. hearts? Right. And it's not, it's not just our children. That's, that's all of our struggles. Right. right? It's all of our struggles. And, and I think the answer goes back to the Word of God. 2 Timothy, 3, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of the Word of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God would be complete. Yes. Right? And so what, what we need to be doing is teaching yeah. and training and rebuking in a loving way and correcting our children on a regular basis. We need to be drawing them back to the Word of God. That's their standard, right? And so we continue to do that. And we do it in a, hopefully in a community 
that's filled with love and compassion, right? right? So it's kind of like this. It's kind of like saying that we want to build a place that's going to impact children for the glory of God, and we'll do it this way. We'll take his word and we'll honor it. Psalm 119, longest chapter of scripture we have, all about loving the law of God. So we've got to love the law of God, right? That's, that's the standard, the law of God. But then we have to implement that standard in a culture of grace. And so we want our children, we want our, your children, my, my, my family, to live right where the, um, the law and grace kiss. We would call it the cross, right? We want to live at the foot of the cross, and so with that view, we, we attack the, we, we engage the culture around us. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Mr. Trotter. Yes. That is the place where we want to live. And it is a place, um, it is a place, our spiritual sight, yes, is a gift that we receive in our humility before him. And it's something that we develop and that the Lord, he, he continues to extend the areas that we can see and the, the riches that we can behold in the kingdom of God. So then Jesus turns to the Pharisees who had tagged along. And I want to reread it just because it's, sometimes hard with the way our culture swims around us and pushes on us, it's hard to believe that sometimes this is actually in the Bible. And Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, are we blind also? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. Does this sound harsh and uncomfortable? Unsettling? Even contradictory to maybe the picture of Jesus we're tempted to carry around? I mean, what about John 3, 17? For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. How do we reconcile these two scriptures? Well, it's funny. It's easy, because I misquoted John three seventeen to you. That's just how, that's how the culture wants us to believe it. John three seventeen says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but he did come to judge the world. Condemn means to carry out a death sentence. It's the big wrecking ball in the building. Boom. Burn it all. Raise it to the earth and start over. No, Jesus did not come to condemn us and give us a death sentence. He came to judge the world. And judgment does not mean to carry out a death sentence. Judgment means to separate truth from lie. 
Judgment. To judge means to separate what is light from the darkness. To separate innocence from guilt with the intention of seeking and saving all who are lost. He wants to get Satan's hands off of you. Jesus didn't just come as a nice teacher. He came as king. He came as the only true arbiter of justice and equity in all of creation. He came as the true judge. And that's why his ministry, when he is separating truth from lie, it is extremely uncomfortable. It can be excruciating. It can try us. And he effectually distinguishes every motive of our heart. When all of those things rise to the surface, it's not comfortable. It's not nice. But it is lovely. It is lovely because his judgment is for the purpose of seeking and saving that which is lost. Remember in the previous chapter, in John chapter eight, the woman was caught in adultery. One of my favorite passages in scripture. And they all bring this woman who's been caught in the very act and Jesus draws the line in the sand and he begins an act of judgment, separating truth from lie, innocence from guilt, light from darkness, revealing and effectually bringing out every motive of the heart in everyone who was there in a way that was extremely uncomfortable and excruciating, unsettling. And the Pharisees dropped their stones, the crowd left. I don't, I don't want any part of this. And Jesus says, where are your accusers, ma'am? I don't condemn you. Just go and sin no more. You see, she saw the true judge. And she wasn't condemned. She was invited to life. She was invited. Her eyes were opened to see the benevolence and the justice of God. Jesus turned later in that chapter and says, you Pharisees, you judge according to the flesh, the way things look on the outside. I judge no one this way. And yet when I do judge, my judgment is true. See, we buy into this tempting ultimatum that we must condemn or unconditionally celebrate something. As if those are the only two options. And I need to plead with you, not personally, but plead with you together. I see so many, I am so weary of listening to believers run to their microphones, their seats of influence, their social media feeds, and condemning people who God has seeking to save, condemning places 
that Jesus wants to heal, like California. Can you, if you can't hashtag your post with agape love, who's listening to Jesus? Who's listening? Yes, he comes to judge. And his judgment is uncomfortable and unsettling, even for Californians. But his purpose is to heal. His purpose is to seek and to save. Stop condemning this place. Stop condemning her people. Stop. 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 Please. Stop. Stop. In a way, Jesus pushed the issue of this man's blindness, and it, it, was, it was like an act of judgment. And I'm not saying a judgment on the man, but a judgment meaning to bring about the motives and the intentions of the heart. He made a spectacle of the man's healing. Had him walk through town with mud on his eyes, like a poster child of blindness, disfigured, marked, made ugly. He knew this would cause a fight with the Pharisees because he had made mud on the Sabbath. He had sent a man who they thought through their religious lens, somebody had to have sinned here. And they, he sent this man with mud to the pool of Siloam which is filled with the holy waters from a spring in Mount Zion, the waters of the sanctuary of God. And he got mud in it. But he came back seeing. And in that, Jesus pushed the issue. He pushed the issue, but not to condemn he pushed the issue with judgment to separate what is darkness and what is light, what is innocent with what is guilty for the purpose of seeking and saving all who were lost, even the Pharisees, inviting them, if you would only acknowledge your blindness, your sin would not remain. Your sin could be forgiven. It doesn't take a prophetic voice to name the problem. It takes a prophetic voice to name the redeemed future. Melody, can you help me? I might need to say that again. It doesn't take a prophetic voice to name the problem. If you are feeding yourself with articles and websites and newsreels and, like, and chatter from, from friends that is just leading you to a spirit of condemnation, shut them out. It doesn't take a prophetic voice to name the problem. Everyone can see it. It takes a prophetic voice to name the redeemed future. 
This is what Jesus spoke. This was his work, to destroy the works of the devil. To name our redeemed future. We are the redeemed of the Lord. So say so. So say so. The Passion Translation says it this way. Jesus told them, if you would acknowledge your blindness, then your sin would be removed. But now that you claim to see, your sin remains with you. Blindness is most dangerous to those who still believe they can see. We need his vision. We need his sight. Not to name the problem, but to see our redeemed future.